Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair and Panoply. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with Vanity Fair's digital director, Mike Hogan. Hey, Katie. And Vanity Fair's film critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. And all the way from the West Coast, Vanity Fair senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hello. So this week, uh, it's in the wake of a pretty dismal opening box office for The Birth of a Nation, which was a huge Sundance purchase. It was a big deal and then became plagued by scandal surrounding its star and director, Nate Parker. Box office isn't always Oscar fate, but in this case, it seems to be. So we'll talk about what the fate of this movie is and maybe lessons we can learn from it. And then from there, we're going to look at the best actress race. We've all seen some films at various festivals that have us talking about who might win that statue. For some reason, best actress is one of the most fun categories to talk about every year. And this year, it's looking like a really good lineup. Finally, we'll put on our prediction caps and look at the best supporting actress category as well. So, Birth of a Nation. Richard, you saw this at Sundance. You were there for Mm -hmm. the hype and the craziness and the huge ticket sale. Was it the kind of thing where when you spend $17 million on a movie at Sundance, like it was almost destined not to reach its expectations regardless of what happened after? Yeah, I mean, it's hard. There's actually an interesting article on on Vox.com right now about it's kind of a critic wrestling with her experience of being at the premiere and then kind of looking at the movie now 10 months later Mm. and being like kind of reading her review from Sundance and being like oh did I kind of get this wrong and I kind of did the same thing but at that time yeah it felt like this inevitable hit but then there always is at Sundance in particular over the festivals that little creeping kind of thing underneath it that like oh is this all just festival fever and I think I had that less for this movie, but it was certainly there, you know. Yeah. Well, and when this movie came out, we talked about it on the podcast. It was like a week after the Oscar nominations had come out. The Oscars so white hash, I could really take off. Yeah. And the whole idea of a really prestigious movie with a black director and a black cast was so appealing that it really felt like regardless of if it was as good as people were saying, it was going to be important and discussed. Mm-hmm. I saw it, you know, at sea level here in a screening and I talked about it on the podcast. I actually think it's a very powerful, if somewhat flawed film. Somebody in the New Yorker was writing and saying, well, it actually uses superhero conventions, I guess, which was a dig from the New Yorker. Although to me, I was (laughs) like, well, that's probably a good idea. It makes a movie that people want to watch all the way through. But, you know, it's not an art piece the way that 12 Years a Slave was. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, it, it functions more like a kind of like an action movie of revenge. But also it's triggering all of your outrage sensors and everything. But in order for anyone to experience it, they're going to have to go. And I don't think people want to go. There's enough ugliness in the world right now and the ugliness of this Nate Parker story. People are just staring away. Yeah. Joanna, you're a woman on the Internet. You've witnessed kind of the conversation <laughs> around Nate Parker. Do you feel like if it weren't for that scandal, this movie would have stood more of a chance? Or is it just a hard sell for a movie about a slave revolt no matter what? No, I think the the quote unquote scandal definitely sunk it. Because I think those same people who would want to champion birth of a nation and i'm not you know lumping mike hogan in with this but the people who like really like to see a movie that they feel sort of politically righteous about and i think birth of a nation sort of offered that opportunity but that the venn diagram of those people intersects exactly with the venn diagram of people who just feel righteously against sexual assault and the fact that this movie came out the day that the Trump tapes came out, oh I God. think only further exacerbated, Boy, you know, that's true. It's, <laughs> it's just like a larger, larger conversation that just keep, keeps getting louder and louder. And the volume was cranked up big time on the date of the premiere. And I think also kind of this week and last, when more people saw the film at screenings or at the theater, some really great writers like Kara Brown and Ira Madison, who are black writers and, you know, write a lot about black issues, saw the film and came down really hard on it. So I think that like, 
within the community that in the movie's kind of grandest hope that they're sort of addressing and making this film for, there's a lot of strife about the movie there. So I think that maybe from Sundance, we all sort of overestimated the interest in this particular not the story, certainly, but the film and the filmmaker. So that's the first time that's ever happened at Sundance. It's, I, it's, it's amazing. a completely <laughs> new phenomenon. Well, that's the trouble with movies at Sundance is you have, you know, nine months worth of buildup for when other people are going to see it. And there's really, there's no way to avoid the sense of overhype. I think me and Earl and the Dying Girl had this problem last year where it was this huge Sundance hit. And then by the time it opened in the summer, it was just fell like a stone. Like nobody had the time of day for it. And you look at recent Best Picture nominees that did premiere at Sundance. They're quieter. Like Boyhood was a Sundance hit. Mm-hmm. And Brooklyn, Brooklyn was like a... But that wasn't even a Sundance hit. Like, Richard, you were saying yeah. you saw it at Sundance and people weren't even talking about it. And then it became a Best Picture nominee. Yeah, I got some nice reviews, but that was kind of it. And then I think when it went to Toronto months later, that's when more people were like, oh, I think this is... Because it kind of fit better at that festival. Yeah. Beast of the Southern Wild kind of threaded the needle a little yeah. bit. But it wasn't... No one watched it and said, oh, my God, we we have our Best Picture. Yeah. Everybody said, wow, there's this weird movie that you got to see. It was a scrappy underdog. And it ended up, you know, being enough for an eight or nine slot in Best Picture. And that's kind of what Boyhood... I mean, Boyhood was more of a front runner, but it was also kind of a, an underdog. Like, you really wanted to pull for it. And yes. Birth of a Nation had all this weight of history and fixing racism on it. Like, it had more weight yeah. on it than any film could handle, much less one that's this flawed. I think there's still, though... You know, I was thinking about Me, Earl, and the Dying Girl as the buzz buzzed hit last year that, that fell flat. And there is still, of course, that benefit of being the buzzy breakout from Sundance, even if you don't wind up cleaning up at the box office, like the cast of Me, Earl, and the Dying Girl, Olivia Cook, you know, these other actors are getting these auditions that mm-hmm. they never would have gotten because in that industry-focused festival atmosphere, um, they were the most talked about thing. And so even if Birth of a Nation hadn't landed well, I think Nate Parker would have gotten more opportunities were he not now sort of smeared Toxic. by this. Yeah, this event. Yeah, th- th- this is a unique case in terms mm-hmm. of the things that have emerged. By the way, there is a boyhood from this year's Sundance, and it's Manchester by the Sea. Ah, yeah. You're you're a big uh, drum beat for this one. I am going to be, start beating the drum. Yeah. This is exactly the kind of movie I'd beat the drum about. <laughs> Usually it ends in heartbreak. D- deep disappointment <laughs> and heartbreak. But I Much think like that... the movie. Yeah. <laughs> but I think that that's a film that came out with buzz, but not with this kind of deafening, like, oh, cancel Oscar season. Mm-hmm. And I would be very surprised if it didn't uh, come in with a Best Picture nomination and a bunch of other stuff. I think the other thing about that compared to Boyhood also is that like Richard Linklater and Kenneth Lonergan coming out with good films at Sundance it's like well sure we expected them right. to be good yes. it really when it's a first time filmmaker or a, or a second time filmmaker that's when you get the excitement thing and that creates that sort of Sundance fervor mm-hmm. right and I think that that's maybe a little unfair to a movie like Manchester because it's like this beautifully made and probably maybe it deserved a little bit more kind of excitement um, back in January but it's getting it now so. but you're right it's not it's not a discovery where everyone yeah. drops everything and runs to yeah. see it yeah, who exactly. is this kid and let's give them, you know, yeah. 18 million or whatever. It was already on everyone's schedule. Right. You know. mm. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's valid. Yeah, I feel like we keep seeing the danger of that who is this kid drop everything hype at Sundance because it, it backfires so often compared to when it works. I mean, Nate Parker, again, is a really unusual case. But right. Then you get people who, you know, have a Sundance hit and then get thrown up to direct some huge movie like Mark Webb, who uh, was given the Spider-Man franchise after 500 Days of Summer. And those movies were fine, but they faltered. And it, it almost feels like it hurt his career at this point. It's so that hype machine can really go overboard. 
Yeah, there's something very screwed up about Hollywood's thing of like, oh, there's a white guy who made a movie. Let's <laughs> give him a giant superhero franchise. Although they seem oh. to be trying to uh, correct that a little bit. Well, the most successful current example is Ryan Coogler, who had Fruitvale Station at Sundance and then made Creed, and now is uh, making he's making a Marvel movie, right? I'm not making that yes. up. Yeah, so uh, it's it's working for a non-white guy for once. Yeah, That's but true. that that. But he had Creed in that between. Has an yes. Intermediate- Yeah, yeah, that has like an intermediate step versus, I mean, it's silly to talk about Trevorrow as if he's not successful since Jurassic World made a gajillion dollars, but I think there are people who look at that film and don't see the technique that Spielberg saw when he plucked him, do you know? Mm -hmm. So. Well, meanwhile, uh, Ben Zeitlin, director of Beasts of the Southern Wild, is yet to make his second film, so maybe he's cracked the code. What is he doing? He's been in Louisiana building uh, weird stuff, as far as I know. Oh, really? (laughs) I mean, I think he's going to emerge with another movie eventually, and it'll probably be just as surprising as Weird of Beasts of the Southern Wild, and maybe that's the way to go. So yeah, that could be Live in the swamp it. and make what you want and don't mm-hmm. do You don't Hollywood. get updates about him from your Wesleyan newsletter? I should be getting it from the Wesleyan newsletter. <laughs> There'll be a great New Yorker profile of him in about 40 years. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. And then I'll, uh, I'll right. feel just as unaccomplished <laughs> as I do <laughs> having been in the same college. <laughs> the whole universe depends on everything fitting together just right. Have one piece bust, even the smallest piece, the entire universe will get busted. This here is an aurochs, a fierce creature. The star's coming! The star's coming! Y'all better learn how to survive. I'm your daddy, and it's my job to take care of you, okay? So I'm intensely jealous of Joanna and Mike, both of whom uh, recently caught La La Land thanks to the festival circuit. It's probably my most anticipated movie of the fall at this point. And uh, Richard, you saw it earlier in Toronto. So I'm really jealous of all three of you. And I want to mostly just hear about all the dance numbers, but it feels like Emma Stone is the uh, kind of most interesting conversation of the fall to me because she's got this huge, great lead performance in it. And it made me want to talk generally about Best Actress. But uh, first, guys, tell me, does she have it locked up? Is Emma Stone just going to win the Oscar and it's over? Not necessarily, because we got to also talk about Annette Benning, And then there's this Viola Davis thing just hanging over <laughs> everybody like a sword of Damocles. I don't know why everyone just kind of says, like, Viola's winning. Shut up. So there's that possibility. But she's really, really great. Yeah. There's an amazing scene, and Richard and Joanna can maybe back me up, where she's in an audition. And you get lost in this performance that she's doing in this audition. And they do this incredibly cruel thing where the assistant is in the back tapping on the door with a post-it. And the person's like, come in. Uh, I'll be done in two minutes. And you're taken out of this thing. And so it's operating incredibly effectively on two levels. Really hard to do. She does a lot of like single take auditioning in ways that make you feel for her. So that alone, I think, is, is very cool. I don't know that she has a full-on breakdown. Neither does Annette Benning. We're going to talk about this. There's not that full-on mucus coming out of the nose and mouth, you know, best actress <laughs> scene. The Halle Berry make me feel good moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's the that's the only question I have. Joanna, how about you? Are you in love with this movie and her? Yes, I'm in love with the movie. I was talking to Richard a little bit about this when I got out of seeing it, and I think we agree that it sags a little in the middle. And Katie, it might sag for you too, because that's where the least amount of dancing happens. Mm, I need, um, need more dancing. 
<laughs> right. That's really there's like they fit, take a pause for human drama and then go back to the dancing. And I think in that moment, I mean, what I was most curious about coming out of it is like, why is everyone talking about Emma Stone rather than Ryan Gosling? Oh. And I don't I don't think it's wrong to talk about Emma Stone. But like, what is it about the movie that so pushes Emma Stone forward and doesn't provide the same for Ryan Gosling? And I think it's that middle part. I think the script sort of lets him down in the middle. His character takes some leaps in motivation that don't quite make sense to me. Whereas I don't think script ever lets Emma Stone down. She's like intensely appealing and sympathetic throughout. And her final audition scene, which is a song, I think, though she doesn't have snot coming out of her nose, I think they made that big that joke at the Golden Globes a couple years ago about her big eyes. And I know that in Birdman, right, they digitally enhanced her eyes, but her eyeballs are enormous in that scene and they just <laughs> suck you in as she sings this beautiful song and i was just like yep yeah, she could she could get the statue just for that does for it sure. have the uh, silver linings playbook dilemma where it's got the ingenue kind of giving the big uh, female performance and the male lead is there and steady but no one notices him because she's so appealing i think that's a yeah he's in service to her mm-hmm. unquestionably and i think that's probably right you know that's the story yeah. I mean, he's fantastic. Like, especially when he's in like charm and comedy mode, he's yeah. fantastic. Yeah. Some of the drama stuff does not quite land for me, but and we know Gosling is a great dramatic actor. But as a song and dance leading man, I'm just like, yes, please. And Channing Tatum <laughs> is so jealous that he's not in this movie. So, hey, his splash yeah. remake is coming. It's but it's a little bit of an inversion of the old, you know, Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers thing. I mean, he doesn't have to do it backwards in heels, but there's a lot of wonderful scenes, great dancing scenes between them, all that stuff. But I, I do think that it's her movie at the mm-hmm. end of the day. And she gets that centerpiece thing toward the end. The song, yes. Where it's like, yeah. that's what the movie's about. So she yeah. gets to kind of perform the meaning of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, yeah, it kind of seeds to her. And yeah, I mean, she sells it. I mean, I, when I saw it, I tell you, I'd like... You could just feel everyone in the room just sort of like agreeing with the movie at that point. Like, if <laughs> yes. there were any doubters, yeah. I don't think there were many, but like everyone just like, yeah, okay. And then you start to hear the sniffles and the crying, you know, and then it was like, okay. And I, for me, that felt like a kind of a coronation moment for her. Mm-hmm. We are, are obviously our, she has competition that we're going to talk about, but I don't know, man. That song at the end, that's tough to beat. Yeah. And, and yeah. then they follow that song with a, freaking American in Paris dream ballet like I was like this is every musical thing (laughs) that I could possibly want I was so in the tank for this movie you know to begin with because I'm such a huge musicals fan the person sitting next to me Vince Mancini of of Uproxx is not a musicals guy and he was just shattered by the movie that's the word he used was shattered he couldn't drive home he was just completely floored and this is kind of a guy with like a bro reputation so I was like okay (laughs) it hits the whole spectrum it hits the like Sappy Joannas and like, you know, the bro events and yeah, this That's has a pretty this good endorsement. Appeal. Well, it's incredibly romantic in a way that kind of sneaks up on you a little bit, you know, because there is the overt romantic, like full on references to MGM musicals and everything. But a lot of it's shot like a contemporary realist film. Mm-hmm. It's very clearly real Los Angeles. You know, I spent a fair amount of time in Los Angeles and kept being like, oh, I know that place. Oh, I've been there, you know. <laughs> and, and so it's 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 really what it's like to be in Los Angeles, except that the whole story is this classic fantasy of like following your dreams and never give up on your dream. That's And that's the kind of point the movie makes. It's nice. It really, like, by the end of it, you're like, man, that is, like, a nice worldview. It's just a good place to visit, even with, with the sad parts of it. And I think that in a year like this, it, it might very much be a great antidote to the crap that we've yeah, all been and enduring. I, <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to, certainly don't want to ruin this movie for anyone. But I will say that 
it's saved from being sappy by a healthy amount of poignancy, you know, throughout. It really could have been too cute, which, you know, the likes of 500 Days of Summer or whatever gets accused of, but that film has poignancy too. Like, I think that's a really key blue note to sort of balance the uplifting message of following your dreams. And yeah, I was really impressed. By blue it. note, good jazz. Yeah. <laughs> Something Okay, so we referenced Annette Bening at the beginning of this conversation. She's mm-hmm. in 20th Century Women, which premiered at the New York Film Festival over yeah. the weekend. Annette Bening has famously lost out on an Oscar twice to the same ingenue, Hilary Swank. Is this going to be another year where some uh, young upstart takes Annette Bening's Oscar away? I don't know, man. It might be. Probably. I mean, oh, she's so good in it, though. I mean, I think there is still some question about whether she'll be in supporting or not. I don't really? th- I mean, and I can't imagine. I mean, Set this movie up say for the me. kid What's is the, the lead, the oh, boy. So, so the movie is Mike Mills directed and wrote, I think, semi-autobiographical in parts movie about a teenage boy, 15-year-old kid in 1979, Santa Barbara. His mother, who had him when she was a little bit older, I think about 40, so she's in her mid-50s, played by Nat Benning. They're in this great kind of half-crumbling, half-being-repaired mansion in Santa Barbara where they have two tenants, played by Greta Gerwig and Billy Crudup. Mm. And so it's kind of just coming of age. Uh, Elle Fanning is kind of the friend, love interest character. Um, but she's given depth and agency. And it's just a really well done movie. Well, my and joke is this movie fails the Bechdel test in the most feminist ways possible. <laughs> yes, it's got exactly it's right. to be intentional. Like yeah. all the women are frequently talking about the 15 year old boy. Uh-huh. But it's basically like, how are we going to fix this kid and make sure he's not like another fuck up like all the other men, you know, <laughs> since he doesn't have a dad. Um, yeah. But yeah, and Annette Bening's character is I've never seen anybody like that before on screen, I feel like. It's like a new character for me, and yet yeah. relatable and reminded me of my own mom and in other ways. You know, she's this very idealistic, but also uh, 70s person, but also child of the Depression. So a big part of the film is her difficulty in kind of accessing her feelings or being honest about her feelings about her life. Which is a subtle thing to make a movie about, mm-hmm. you know, like how, how subtle, it's yeah. hard for a kid to kind of relate to his older mom loving her but being frustrated and being 15. It's, you know, it's, it kind of it does kind of meander. There's not a thread pulling this movie forward. It's the right. same amount of time as La La Land, but takes longer to get there. But you yeah. really feel like you're in this world. And really get to know this character in a in a really rich way. So, well, you think know. about uh, Mike Mills' previous movie, Beginners, which won Christopher Plummer an Oscar. He's yeah. playing the father yeah. in this movie. I think that was also semi autobiographical. So, when it Mike, yeah, when it was Mike kind Mills, of the other half of Mike Mills, <laughs> when yes, Mike Mills uh, runs out yeah. of parents, I don't know what he's going to do with yeah. his career. <laughs> yeah. But that movie's also about music videos. it's also about complicated internal things, and mm-hmm. it was really well accomplished, including with a dog who had thoughts. So, you know, he's obviously proven he can do this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he can, and and I think you know the movie will have I mean it was resonant for me my father was 49 when I was born and so I know what the experience of having an older parent and and kind of having that huge generational gulf and you know so I think it affects it works on that level it works I think for anybody who's ever been a teenager whether they're boy or girl gay or straight whatever if you can tap into the movies kind of subtle rhythms and themes it works it actually is really I think affecting and I think that a performance like Benning's and like Greta Gerwig's really help you kind of shepherd you into the mood of the because you want to kind of get to know Annette Benning's character more and more and more as the film goes yes. because she's so good at 
building kind of piece by piece this 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 person she's kind yeah. of awe-inspiring that yeah. you know she's yeah. this like she's just this i don't know this figure incredible this figure yeah, yeah. yeah. kind of like annette Metting in real life where you kind of look at her and she's <laughs> this icon and married to Warren Beatty. she's yeah. having yeah, but this, figured out but this version is much more vulnerable mm-hmm. you know but but not but won't let it be won't let you yeah. in but you mm-hmm. can tell you know she's she's i don't know it's a fascinating character it's really it's well done but yeah i think compared to beginners he as usual for a follow-up film he's bit off a lot more than he did with beginners i think it's a bigger cast more sprawling kind of story yeah it has like socioeconomic sprawl to it yeah and yeah it's about it's about time and place he really you know? recreated santa barbara in 1979 in a very kind of large way yeah um so i think that for that reason it's a little bit of a trickier play than beginners which was very just kind of straightforward but beginners had the gay angle let's be honest i mean you know like christopher Plummer playing an old gay man like that's right it's a hook there's a hook Mm -hmm. that you get and this one's harder to explain Anyway, we talk about like a complicated indie with a lot of emotions and then like a big glossy musical that's like all about a love letter to Hollywood. It yeah. really feels like a David and Goliath. I mean, these it it's is. not just La La Land and 20th Century Women, but, you know, when you, in terms of Oscar friendliness, like one of them obviously has an edge. But both really capture California in a way that feels very mm. uh, sort of real. Yeah. And uh, Academy friendly. Yes. Yeah, yeah, we know those yeah. Oscar voters love seeing California. <laughs> right. Because I mean, it's my... the best date, guys. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Mike Mills, his aesthetic sense is just absolutely flawless. It's unbelievable. I mean, the whole thing is so gorgeous to look at and fun to look at if you're tuned into that frequency. So to look real quickly at the rest of the Best Actress field, I yeah. think it really is a strong year. It's crazy to me that we've had this conversation about Best Actress, and Natalie Portman's playing Jackie O in a biopic mm-hmm. that everyone loves, and she's like in third or fourth place, apparently. Like, how is this even possible? Right, I didn't even bring her up before. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's a stacked year, and, you know, I think the the reason that Natalie Portman isn't more in the conversation, well, not that many people have seen the movie yet, yes. but also... This is Jackie uh, that we're talking about. Oh, sorry, about. yeah. People saw it at Toronto. Also, she won six years ago you know mm-hmm. i feel like so i feel like there's not this kind of like anticipation for her as because it's like oh yeah we you know she's great and we'll you know she'll be fine because yeah. she already yeah. has her you don't need to yeah. uh, prove that you love her but i don't know i mean it's it's screening at kind of a secret screening tomorrow at the new york film so it'll be today when Thursday. this podcast airs <laughs> uh, at the new york film festival uh so I'll, so the reaction there could be we'll see but i think it's gonna be good i'm going so i'll, I'll hey. we can talk about it next week it would be amazing though because natalie portman won her oscar for black swan she was very pregnant and she's pregnant again so she yeah. won two oscars yeah. both of which very pregnant just you know we already talked about this katie while oh, you, you were on yes. turning <laughs> leave now and now now you've been revealed that you want, didn't listen to I the episode i just while want more out. pregnant people in pop culture it's, you are you know, busted representation yeah. uh <laughs> So you guys have all seen more movies than I have. Anyone else in the Best Actress Hunt that uh, you're pulling for or want to see us talk about? Joanna, did you see anything uh, at your festival this past weekend that that jumped out? Not in terms of Best Actress, no. I think when we talk about Best Supporting Actress, I have a few things to say. But no, other than Emma Stone, I I don't think, you know, I saw Patterson, which is not a (laughs) Best Actress movie. Unless um, that dog is a girl. Right. (laughs) And then I'm seeing the bulk of the rest of the films this week, so... Yeah, it's it's pretty interesting. Emma Stone was there at the La La Land screening that I saw, and it was so interesting to me because I've seen a lot. You know, I saw Brie Larson at that festival last year, right before she won Best Actress, and she was very much 
already in working it mode, which we've, I think we, mm-hmm. we've all talked about in terms of we love Brie Larson. We think she's very talented, but we also think she ran a very precise Oscar campaign. That's I mean, how that's, almost everyone who wins, especially in Best Actress, does it. You know, it's, it's hard to do it by accident. Right. Uh, whereas Emma Stone was sort of standing in front of the theater. She didn't take her coat off. She sort of was not looking at the audience. She had like a fringe of hair in front of her face. And she was sort of like quietly answering questions. And she, you know, perfectly lovely, but not in working it mode at all. So I'll be curious to see like if when this campaign picks up steam, what we'll see from her. Because she doesn't strike me as a very working it kind of actress you know like she she and Andrew Garfield famously pulled tricks on paparazzi and stuff like that like she seems a very private person so I'll be intrigued to see what happens in the next few months with that someone who is not a stranger to kind of working the campaign is Amy Adams yeah. who um, you right. know is is fantastic in Arrival and a movie that you know has not come out yet but the more and more people see it I think it was just at the London Film Festival and it got a lot of you know a lot yeah, of waves really there good. so I think that that could we should we should never count her out that would be her sixth nomination I think wow um, in, in not in 10 years which is mm-hmm. a crazy amount she did a Q&A at Telluride at you know 8.30 at night and then did another one at nine in the morning, having just gotten into Telluride at four in the morning the day before. She's committed. Like, she commits to these projects and wants to support them. So I think that's that's a real asset, you know, for that movie and for her. But, you know, again, this is such a crowded year. that, And I think that performance is kind of recessive and small. And I feel well, like there's almost a sense that, like, Amy Adams will win her Oscar. Like, she keeps giving a performance so. and she keeps getting nominated. Yeah. Everyone, like, it's like, oh, we can put her off for another year. But, you know, that can happen. And then you never get nominated again. And then it's over. So you don't you don't want to let the opportunity to give Amy Adams her Oscar slip away. Yeah. Well, right. if you want to see Emma Stone work in it, watch the video from Toronto of Krista <laughs> interviewing her and Ryan Gosling because she she does she rose for two in that one because uh. uh, Gosling is hilarious but doing press is like he's allergic <laughs> to it uh, so she was kind of she was kind of covering for both to, so it's uh, like the Anne Hathaway and James Franco Oscars of video <laughs> interviews yeah. you know it's yeah it's back to Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers the classic <laughs> one when they're doing press together she's doing it for, yeah. for both of them backwards and in heels I won't dance don't ask me I won't dance don't ask me, I won't dance, madam, with you. My heart won't let my feet do things they should do. Talk about Best Supporting Actress, since Joanna, you said you had a lot of contenders. So to go big before we go home, uh, who's going to win Best Supporting Actress, guys? Joanna, you can go first. You know what? This is going to sound silly, I guess. But I, I'm going to say Michelle Williams for Manchester by the Sea. Um, Not silly. Like, if you want to talk about like the snot coming out of your nose mm-hmm. sort of actress performance, which we've seen Michelle Williams do, this is this is a classic one. It also has a an accent on top of it. But you know, like Michelle Williams, I just think I think she has the ability to, to tap really deep into vulnerability and in, in a way in this film, uh, it's very appealing to me. So that would be my vote. Richard? I like Joanna's vote, but based on this weekend and my own sort of love for her movies past uh, Greta Gerwig mm. in 20th Century Women I think it's so good I think that would be a real kind of like anointing performance like kind of award for her being like okay kid you're finally in the club after being in indies for so long mm-hmm. honestly I think she has a better shot of winning than Benning does 
as a kind of representative for this nice little movie. Kind of the way Plummer won for supporting for. Hey, right. Yeah, so. yeah. And she's also in Jackie. She's a tiny part in Jackie, okay. but yeah, she is in Jackie. So she has that kind of a little, you know, added, bumped up profile. She'll be uh, at twice as many cocktail parties to there meet you go. voters. That's exactly I mean, right. yeah. what, about Elf, what about Elle Fanning in 20th Century? I mean, she's Woman. been she's been simmering. You know what it is? You know? If you ever if you've ever met Elle Fanning, she's like the bubbliest person alive. It's hilarious. Oh, really? And so, with that in mind, watching that performance, I was like, man, she's really acting her ass off because yeah. this is like <laughs> one cranky kid yeah. uh, in that movie. I thought she was really good. They're both, but yeah, Greta Gerwig has more a little more shading. I just feel I like don't it's know. Her kind of great. opening up to the world in a way. I mean, Frances yes. Ha was good, but <clears throat> this is like a little bit more mainstream, and it's just like. Yeah. Here she is. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, she figured it out. So. Yeah. And not in full Manic Pixie Dream Girl. Or, not at or, all. No. You know, yeah. 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 All right, Mike, what do you think? Manic Panic Dream Girl. Manic Panic. Oh. Because she, she, she does. She does thank you. Hair, yeah, right? good, Mike. <laughs> Trying to keep up with the blue note <laughs> thing from <laughs> earlier. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't. Everyone always takes my pick. I kind of think Michelle Williams. I just, mm. I don't know. Yeah, you have Manchester. Know. I, well, you know, I I really fell for that movie and that scene where she's I, I don't want to spoil it, but there's a, there's quite an extraordinary scene toward the end. I mean, no she one... sings a song. It's really weird. She sings <laughs> a song during an audition yeah. with a Boston accent. No one does devastating emotion like Michelle Williams on film. Yeah, she just she gives the whole array here. I don't know, man. It's really good. I don't uh, know if she's going to campaign or what, but man. Hey, what's interesting is she and Emma Stone were both in Cabaret. I think uh, Michelle took over for Emma and, and Sally Bowles. So yeah, yeah, back on the Oscar right. circuit together. Oh. The Sally Bowles curse. The Sally Bowles blessing. <laughs> uh, me having seen very little, I'm going to go with a real wild card. Uh, Kristen Stewart's in Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk. And uh, I think she's overdue for an Oscar nomination, which is crazy, given that like four years ago, everyone thought she was just the girl from Twilight. But uh, if she's good in it, no one's seen it yet, as far as I know. No, We're going Friday. Yeah. So uh, no. you guys can prove me wrong in a week. But it seems like if she could get nominated and you know if it's a big enough role, like she's she, like Greta, well, not in the same way as Greta Gerwig, which is kind of ready for her leap up into the big Oscar consideration after a career that's kind of taken her in a lot of different directions. I would be thrilled with that. I love her I so would, much. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, everyone does. Her. Like, and, and it's gone from being like, oh, she only just like tosses her hair and stares at vampires to being an incredibly dynamic, fascinating like, actress. Yeah. Two critics, I forget who exactly, like after they saw a personal shopper uh, at New York Film Festival, were like, Kristen Stewart is the best actress of her generation and it's like that is such a huge change from yeah. just a few years ago yeah. so it's is been Personal fun to Shopper watch. out this fall? No the, the, okay. those Asayas movies usually premiere in the spring yes. so it'll be out in like March but Clouds of Sales Maria got a ton of attention in yep. award season regardless well so. and she won whatever that crazy Cesar. Cesar award Yeah, I always think of her not as Twilight but as uh, the crazy gypsy kid from Into the Wild so oh, that's, yeah. where, that's my context for her great acting it's not even surprising no, no one goes to Panic Room yeah. I was gonna say Hey, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so uh, a lot of interesting actresses coming up to the front this season. It's going to be fun. Yeah. And that does it for this week's Little Gold Men. Thank you so much for listening. And if you can, rate and review us on iTunes. We appreciate it. And it helps us find new listeners as this Oscar season gets going. You can find us all writing about award season and other stuff at VanityFair.com. And we're on Twitter at Little Gold Men. And on our own, I'm at Katie Rich. Richard? Rylaws, R-I-L-A-W-S. And Mike? Mike underscore Hogan, but don't even look because it's all just Trump stuff. I just don't even go there for a month. Yeah. Anti-Trump stuff. Anti-Trump anti stuff. <laughs> Give you three more weeks to uh, get back to underground level. Uh, Joanna, how about you? Joe wrote this. Also a lot of anti-Trump stuff. Yeah, and Westworld stuff, if you're into Westworld. 
This episode was edited and produced by Alana Milner, and thanks to Laura Mayer and Annie Bowers at Panoply. And the award for best defense of Donald Trump's sniffles goes to Mike Hogan. There's not that full-on mucus coming out of the nose and mouth. Mm-hmm.